Welcome to Kuden, the radio show and podcast for self-defense and martial arts news, interviews, techniques, and history. Hosted by Sheehan Jeffrey Miller and Shidoshi Eric White. Sheehan Miller is a 13th degree black belt and master instructor of Warrior Concepts International in Sunbury, Pennsylvania. Shidoshi Miller's martial arts career spans over 30 years and has taken him around the world to train with some of the world's best martial arts masters. Shidoshi Eric White has been a student of Sheehan Miller's for over a decade. Together, they will answer your questions, discuss techniques, history, and current issues important to you, the self-defense-minded citizen and the practicing martial artist. Submit your questions by email to warriorc at warrior-concepts-online.com. Hello and welcome to Kuden. This is episode 55. Man, we just keep push, pushing these out, which is great. And uh, we're so happy you're here with us. Uh, a bit of a delayed start to today's program, but big thanks to everybody. There's a number of people uh, on on the program today hanging in there. We're, we're delayed a little bit and waiting for uh, Mr. Miller to, to join us on the program. He's in the middle of traveling. He's kind of going through a, I guess, a spotty area, so kind of hard for him to get in. But uh, did want to take a moment since we didn't have a program last week, which that was that was my fault because uh, I wasn't able to be uh, part of the program. But um, we did have a question come in from Josh last week. We'll try to try to get to that here quickly. And if you have any questions, if you're just joining us, I see Tim and Tom, a couple other people there on the webcast side. Certainly, uh, you know, good good for Tom. Said, "Oh, I'm here. I was running late. Uh, you're not late today because it worked out." Um, we did get started until a little later, but if you have a question, certainly submit that through the, the module. You can send in your comments and questions that way if you're on that webcast version of uh, of our program. Or if you call in, you can participate and ask your call live, and we have a dialogue that way too. And we can get your messages through our Facebook page. That's always great. Just message us, Kuden Podcast, on, on Facebook. So uh, we're going to have a little bit of an abbreviated program today in that you're just getting the Eric-only version right now, unless... By some uh, form of, of luck, uh, Shidoshi Miller is able to jump in here and, and add on to it while we're on the program. So let me get to Josh's question. This was from last week. And uh, again, we didn't have the, the, the program last week, but wanted to get to this question. It's a great one. And we had talked about uh, Ninja Fist a while back. Um, maybe it was episode 50. And we discussed just, uh, I think it was a question about training the strength of your fingers and how how you can uh, improve that when using some of these other like finger strikes, the shishin ken and the shikan ken uh, and the shitan ken, the spear hand or the shikan ken is this, you know, four, the, the, the knuckles or four rings or chisel fist where the knuckles are extended. So many different types of fists. Uh, you can look over, there's kind of like the primary, the 16 fists of uh, the, the ninja. And so there's all these different methods. And it's important to remember I, uh, I'd want to point out with all of, whether it's a ninja fist, whether it's a, a weapon, that the ninja mindset for many of these fists and weapons were that everything was a tool. And in order for it to be a tool, it had to serve not just one purpose, but in many cases, multiple purposes. It, 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 if it only could do one thing, it wasn't very useful. Um, you know, they wanted, uh, they needed things to be utilitarian, have many uh, ways in which they could use uh, an item. And so, um, again, this was kind of the different thinking that the ninja would have, unconventional or using conventional things unconventionally. And that's how the ninja were able to be successful. So, you know, take take in the case of uh, like the ninjato or, or the ninja's sword or even just a, a, a sword they might have been using. 
instead of looking at it as just this sword or even in a way this romantic soul of the samurai idea that a samurai would have had when uh, when using their sword, ninja would look at the sword as a tool. And in many cases, there's, I think, some... There might even be some photos of this and some text where uh, instead of it just being a cutting tool, and many times it was used as a, a climbing tool in some cases where the ninja could plant, you'd plant your sword um, kind of at an angle up against a, a, a wall to help you scale up to the top of a wall because you could use the the suba, the, the, the handguard, as a step. If you didn't have a step up, you know, you could you could prop your sword there, step up on that guard to get up higher and because often ninjato and the saya the 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 scabbard of the ninja sword had an extra long uh was it the sageo i think i'm saying that right the 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 length of cord that was used to tie off your sword scabbard to your belt and because that was extra long you had more rope you could tie that then to your your sword and then pull it back up with you when you got to the top of the the wall and get over the other side so always more than one use for an item. Same thing applies to fists, right? We want to we don't have just maybe one striking surface with a fist. We think of it as a tool with many purposes, striking surfaces or in some cases using to climb, you know, some of these kind of the shako can claw fitting fingers into different nooks and crannies for climbing. So, had to have many uses. So, looping back around here to Josh's question, he asks about the vertical striking of a fist versus horizontal striking. So, uh, and, and, and he talks about training in ninja classes where we're striking with this vertical orientation of the fist versus a horizontal one. And uh, so that's kind of the crux of his question. It sounds like, oh, we have uh, more people jump on the program, which is great. I'm just going to put it here in lecture mode. So uh, if you have questions, we'll, we'll get to that here after this. But, um, Anyway, so why is this done if you watch uh, a, a traditional karate class? They have this twisting of the fist, and the fist lands and strikes in a horizontal orientation. So Josh's question is, you know, what, what's, what's the deal with that? So um, Mr. Mr. Miller jumped on here to answer his question, and, and not everybody had a chance to see that. So I'll kind of share that with you, but uh, he goes into detail about it not being so much the orientation of knuckles in position uh, of the strike, but rather the anatomy and physiology uh, and some strategy in there of the position of your arm, right? So all of this centers around positioning your elbow for strength and power, stability, also while providing cover. So if you think about a standard kind of strike straight in, whether it's a just kind of a, a, a stepping uh, strike that if you've been in several classes you've done. Um, as this comes in, if you keep your knuckles, if you will, aligned in a vertical orientation, like you're like you're holding the handle of a saw and you're sawing wood, you have all the strength then of the anatomy of your arm and how your bicep triceps operate, and then how that arm connects into your shoulder and the rest of your torso to be able to put all of that in alignment. It's very strong. So you can test this out too, which is kind of fun. If you, if you just plant your fist against a wall, you try to lean your weight into the wall, right? Uh, you'll feel how that all flows into your, into your arm socket, your shoulder. Now, if you do that same motion and you plant your fist in a horizontal uh, orientation against the wall, 
and lean into that, you can feel how the elbow then is going back uh, into nothing, right? And it puts a lot of pressure and torque on your shoulder because there's nothing behind that elbow as opposed to if you have the vertical orientation, it's all in alignment and it goes back into your body and it's very strong and stable. Uh, plus, that keeping that elbow down and aligned provides cover as that strike comes in as well. So that's the purpose there um, in a kind of brief nutshell of, of why it is done that way. Uh, hello, sir. I think uh, I think we've got you in. Hello. Hey. <laughs> Glad you could join us. Uh, thanks. Be late, and, <laughs> late for my own show. What the hell? <laughs> well, anyway. uh, you know, we, we we had a number of people on the call, so I, I just you, you're not too far behind because uh, we waited a little bit to get started. But um, just okay, kind of getting cool. into answering Josh's question. Which came uh, last last week about uh, the right. orientation of of uh, fist or strike and vertical versus horizontal. Right. And I I did send Josh a little short answer, but um, and I got on here at the at the tail end of yours, so uh, it sounds good. I don't know what all you covered, but I'll listen to the recording like everybody else. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Sorry about that. It's okay. Can you mute me I out? I was interrupted. No, I was interrupted. <laughs> it's quite oh, all right. All right, fair enough. Well, here we are. What a day, huh? It is. It is. So, um, yeah, I'm sorry. Like I said, I was interrupted there. But we, we, you know, talking about the strength of alignment of the anatomy and and how that that's the reason for the orientation of the knuckles, not so much because the knuckles can do something inherently different it's more about the arm right well you you also have to consider you know armor and uh um, you cover the opening so if you if you rotate that elbow up uh you leave openings and things like that but we're looking at natural extension and all of this starts with the fact that you know i've always said that that needs is kind of backwards from everything else because um where when most people think of martial arts they think of unarmed training and then as you develop skill that way, then you start to add weapons. And mm-hmm. while we do it that way today, historically, right, you actually started with weapons. So once you understand that uh, everything started with Yagi and Naginata and then progressed to sword and things like that, you start to really understand why a lot of these Kamai were developed because the Kamai are based on the reality of warfare that you learned when you had to deal with, you know, bladed weapons and uh, having long arms and things like that. So, uh, as a matter of fact, in um, in the Jinkan, uh, the, the group that uh, Manaka Sensei had uh, developed when he, uh, had, it's a long story, he retired from the military and all that kind of stuff. So, anyway, uh, when he put the Jinkan together, uh, to get a second-degree black belt, uh, all of it is about the uh, the long staff, the six foot staff, mm. and um, uh, he had these grading sheets for every test, right? And basically, what he used was a circle, a square, and a, and a triangle. So it was either a pass, fail, or a mm, need some work kind of thing, right? Well, um, nine pages, nine pages of critique, right? And if your elbows left your ribs once during that entire 
say during all the contests, both what he got, all that kind of stuff, because of opening uh, openings in armor and all that stuff, and moving the weapon out of a protective guarding position in front of you. If you uh, if you moved your elbows outside of that position once during the entire task, you failed. So it was wow. kind of the counterbalance to uh, the Bujinkan kind of thing where you can get promoted for the amount of time you've had in training or having a good heart. And I'm not here to tell Hutsmith that they had to promote people. He can promote people anyway once. I mean, I got promotions thrown at me too. But um, Manaka said they was just the opposite. Just, hmm. you know, you're expected to do these things. These are, you know, foundational combat principles. You screw this up, you die kind of thing, right? So wasn't subjective where people could kind of, you know, do it if they want, not if they don't. You know, make up your own style kind of thing. Um, yeah. So, yeah, no, it's all good. I love when Josh sends in questions like that. I think he's <laughs> trying to play skunk the chump, but I'm not I'm not sure. One one of the things I was talking about before you joined on the call and, and kind of um, before, before I got into, you know, putting some color onto the question, um, it was talking about this idea of, uh, ninja fists, but also ninja tools, or, or how you know weapons were even looked at as tools. And, and I know you've talked many times in class about how um, you, you know the ninja wanted to be very utilitarian. It's something something that had to have more than one purpose or use. Uh, if, it, if it was only good for kind of one thing and that was it, uh, it got tossed out because it just it needed to be more useful than that. And, it, and in some cases, um, it gets back to kind of that ninja way of thinking of using something conventional, unconventionally. And uh, I gave the example of how, uh, like, uh, the sword or the ninja toe um, would have been used sometimes to help uh, as a step up to get over a wall and how that right. was way outside the thinking of, you know, uh, uh, the samurai who, you know, would never do such a thing of, you know, stick stick my sword in the dirt and step on it to get up to a wall and... Right. Uh, that, that's, right. you know, that's my soul and my ancestors and why, you know, why would I ever do that? But the ninja had just a different way of thinking. And so they would use anything that they could that in, in many different ways. Um, and so, well, it, it, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, and so, you know, I was kind of, I was curious about that. Maybe some more insight on that when it comes to, to, you know, ninja fists and, and different ways of striking, because same kind of thing, you know, we've talked about that too, on how many different striking surfaces, many different ways to use the fist, maybe not even for right. striking, for climbing. So it, it just expanding on that. Well, the fists themselves were developed uh, as best ways to strike very specific areas of the body, right? So, and while we start people with a Fudokan, and everybody tends to know about a Fudokan, the Fudokan, while you can hit somebody with it, from the ninja's perspective, historically, the Fudokan was the launching point for these other specialty fists. So, you know, it, it, all this disguise and stealth and invisibility, all this kind of stuff we're going to cover at spring camp coming up, is embedded in our techniques, right? So you face somebody with your hands clenched as fists, and, you know, you maybe even take up a conventional quote-unquote, ready position or whatever, right, um, you don't show any of your stuff, right? Your stuff should pop out when they can't do anything about it, okay? So uh, if we think about just the shape of the fist itself, it's kind of a blunt force kind of thing, right? But if we if we go back to what I said about how the Taijutsu was based on spear, naginata, and sword, the 
Shitan Ken, the Boshi Ken, and the Shuto are much better related. Uh, you know what I mean? There's a much better parallel than mm-hmm. this blunt force kind of thing coming in. So, um, now, the other reason why Fudoken's not a big deal, and it seems like a big deal today because people can substitute as they want because we're wearing T-shirts and jeans, right? But now think about wearing uh, wooden or lacquered uh, armor with some metal bars in it, stuff like that, big heavy rope or uh, silken lacing and stuff like that, right? Not a whole lot of openings and certainly not enough that you can fit a big rock at the end of your arm into. And you're, if you think you're going to punch armor, um, that'd be like some, trying to punch somebody in a winter parka, right? Mm. You hit them, I bet you have lots of power, but it's not going anywhere, and you may end up hurting yourself. But the Shikankan, the Boshikan, the stone, all that, they're much more narrow. They're much more focused, and they can get in between things um, and actually go for body targets, right, because you have small gaps in the armor. So understanding why these things are developed is a, is a huge thing. But also going back to what you said about the things being a utility thing, right? If we think about just on the gaining side, because there's lots of forms of ninjutsu, and I don't mean lots of forms like people talk about on Facebook pages and, and whatnot where they're really swapping out styles for doing things. They're mm. not talking about different types of ninjutsu. They're talking about different types of unarmed self-defense styles, right? But we think about the different uh, different types of ninjutsu, one very specific type where for the gaining, right, being um, spies, right, having to go on a long-distance mission, infiltrate enemy territory, get some information, you know, come back and all that, they're not carrying military-grade backpacks. It's just, you know, that, that, yeah. that, that's going to slow them down. It makes you stand out. You know, what are you carrying? They're going to be searched on a regular basis, that kind of thing. So they want to, you know, break things down into uh, or to carry the, the fewest items possible so those items have to, uh, they have to uh, serve more than one purpose, right? Kind of like the Kamayari, uh, having holes drilled uh, crosswise through the shaft of the staff, hmm. and then these small dowels were inserted so that this Kamayari, right, could be hooked up over a wall or whatever, and then you had a makeshift ladder because these hmm. pegs were running through hmm. it, right? Uh, so now you have that. Uh, but also the holes were drilled at very specific uniform distance, so the shaft itself, without the pegs in it, could now be used as a measuring device, right? And it's easy to duplicate the measurement, regardless of whether you're using inches, centimeters, or just some made-up distance. You can lay that thing down later and go, it was this, it was this long, right? So because you have a, you have a uniform thing. So <clears throat> these are all important lessons for what we're doing today. I mean... You know, think about the prepper, right, the survival guy. Yeah. These guys are buying all kinds of crap, right? I mean, they're buying fire starters. They're buying first aid kits. They're buying water purification stuff and all that. When, how about if, um, let's, well, I'll stay away from the fire starter for the moment, but just on the water purification side, let's go old school and get tincture of iodine, right? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Three drops of that in a, a military-style canteen cup right, the older style kind of things, right, which I think they were maybe a pint, right? The three drops of that will kill just about anything that's in it, okay? Hmm. But it's sold in first aid supplies because it used to be, a, the, like, the primary uh, wound uh, yeah. uh, 
you know, cleaning kind of thing, mm-hmm. disinfected, right? So I now have one thing that will give me, you know, use for two things, right? Um, and then if we just take carry that into other other realms. So um, I just I, I I think again we keep coming back to the thing that people tend to think about fighting and need to do or self defense or whatever as just a different style or application of the same things they've experienced in other arts, right? Hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the, everybody fights with balled up fists, so let's fight with balled up fists. Or, you know, if the guy's a, a, a grappler, right, he's going to have an open hand and come in that way, right? We position our hands the same way all the time, right? We always start off, uh, unless we're in a, in a Sagan or something, but if we're in an in a, in a entering kind of position, more often than not, the fist is in a boshi ke- or in a fudo uh, ken, right? So it's now very easy to see where where the attacker, right, or the opponent, perceptually, is thinking that you know he knows what I'm doing, right? So uh, you know, if we're in a stagon or whatever, the hands might be open or whatever, but we're typically not in a position where we're grabbing, right? But it's very easy. If you do even minimal research in today's world, it's easy to read somebody's fight style. And if you haven't been so narrow-minded um, and, and so caught up in your own system, and I don't care if you train in two or three or five systems, right, people still tend to compartmentalize, right? Very little hmm. crosses over from one to the other or whatever. You know, those are similarities, but, you know, the rule of thumb is, you don't screw with the style, man, because, you know, that's just not done, right? Um, so, uh, but anyway, it, it's even minimal training, you know, somebody's circling around on you, they've got these kind of rolled shoulders, and they're in this position where they're uh, almost in a Greco-Roman kind of thing, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Hands are open and all that, right? Very few of these guys have trained themselves, and I mean like less than 1%, have trained themselves to punch you from that position or to throw a kick from that position, right? Same thing. Somebody moving around with their fist all balled up and all that, right? Shoulders rounded, lead toes turned in, that kind of thing, right? The jaws dropped a little bit. The puncher, right? Only less than 1% are going to reach out and grab you, right? Same thing with the guy that kind of stays upright and stays real light on his feet. The feet are moving a little bit more proactively than, than normally for just normal walking. You know, this hmm. guy's, he, he likes kicking, right? So, but from the perspective of this, this ninja idea, right, and again, something else we're covering at spring camp, is in juxtapositioning those things, right, using this Kujitsu Tenkan. So if I want this guy to think that I'm really good at punching, then I'm going to ball my fist up and I'm going to put my body in a position that he's used to seeing when he goes toe-to-toe with punchers. So he's not going to be expecting you know, pressure point attacks or whatever, right? If the guy's a kicker, uh, you know, I, I want him to play to his strengths. But I have to get him a little overconfident because I need for him to think he knows what I'm going to be doing, right? Yeah. So so by extension, these fists, hapakens, it's nothing more than an open hand, right, until it actually strikes and you firm down certain muscle groups that allow you to create more impact than just a little girly slap, right? Uh, the uh, Fudoken, right? Uh, just all these things, right? So, uh, 
once you get past this narrow-minded view that fists are only for striking and you can start to work that stuff into something else and get out of that compartmentalization like disguise and impersonation, right? I'm not disguising myself as a, as a puncher. I don't know what that looks like unless I put on Montage shorts and wrestling shoes and whatever, get into a ring. I, I guess that's a disguise. But I can impersonate certain pieces that give enough clues and cues to somebody. So your fists actually end up being part of that perceptual storyline, right? Mm. Balled mm -hmm. up fists mean certain things. Balled up fists held at certain relative positions to the shoulders, neck, or chest speak to certain styles over others, right? Open hands, that speaks of something else. Open hands held at certain relative positions to the shoulder socket, the, the shoulder uh, pockets, mid-chest or mid-torso, things like that, right? And the position of the elbows speak to specific styles within that general grouping. So mm -hmm. very, very, you know, this, this goes well beyond just how we punch, right? So... Again, I know I just took a detour and went down a dirt road, but, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I, this, is, this is about need to. This is about or ninjanizing whatever fight style you think you know, right? Because, again, we keep coming back to the reality that if you fight the same way everybody else does, style aside, because most people's styles, with the exception of the way the stance is positioned, or, you know, little tricks here or there, the, the psychology behind it is, is the same, right? Yeah. So if you fight the same way everybody else does, and you're up against somebody who had some experience at fighting, and I don't mean the pushing, shoving stuff at high school. I mean they've mugged people or they've got into knockdown dragouts more than five, 15 times, whatever, right? Um, he already knows what you're going to do. He's dealt with it. He's, you know, he knows what you're going to do. So he's already developed, either intuitively or through training, defenses for those things. So you're right back to trading blows. Instead of creating a perceptual reality for this person so that he does something that he thinks he's really good at and you suck at, and he just walks right into the bear's den and pokes it in the nose, and then he hmm. can't get out. So, anyway, I know we started talking about uh, punching and striking, but all <laughs> yeah. this stuff, it, it all goes together. Uh, the analogy I gave my my um, uh, Friday uh, distance training group guys this morning uh, was like uh, having a, a jigsaw puzzle, right? Now I was talking about having hmm. a vision for your training and not right. losing sight of the forest for the trees and all that kind of stuff, right? But uh -huh. uh, if you think about the art, every skill and every skill set is like a jigsaw puzzle piece. So jigsaw puzzle pieces are not like tiles that butt up against other things. There's a part of that piece that blends over and bleeds into another piece. It's into it naturally. And just like the, there's recesses in this piece that will that other ones bleed over into, right? And that's how people need to see their training. They need to look for those crossover points where they're not jumping a chasm or stepping over a crack in the sidewalk, it's a natural blending. Kind of like when I taught you, we, we went from rolling and we went from and shuriken throwing 
and then we ended up combining the two so that you could throw a shuriken as you were entering a roll. Not throw it, then roll. You can hmm. actually do it while you're rolling, right? You can hmm. do it in the middle of the roll, and you can do it coming out of the roll. So the person never saw the star leave your hand. The last thing they would have expected when you launch it at the point that you launch it is that something like that's going to happen. Because right. everybody, human beings, tend to compartmentalize, right? So there's a step one, step two kind of thing. And so we're, we're, we're stepping outside of step one, step two, or looking at two separate things and trying to fit them together and looking at each skill and finding the point in each skill where you're making the exact same movement or you're free in that movement to do something completely different without screwing up the movement, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's kind of like when we, um, uh, when we are doing, like, when we're, well, let's stay with the shuriken example, right? Uh, we're going to do EI, or uh, actually more correctly in our art, it's called bato jutsu, right? So mm. we're going to do a draw and cut kind of thing. And so we're right up against somebody else who probably already has his sword out or he's in that position. I can't risk this guy being faster than me. I mean, it's not a contest. You can call it a contest all you want, but that's just a politically correct version of ancient Japanese ways of saying um, the one who gets all this stuff right and better um, is going to win, but winning is the other guy's dead. So it's not like, mm. you know. You're right. <laughs> anyway. So once we taught you EI um, or Bato, right, the draw and cut kind of thing, and you learned Shuriken stuff, then we taught you how to tuck a shuriken into your hand, into the drawing hand, so that he expected this 36-inch razor blade to come out of an equally long saya. And he knows how long that's going to take, so he's learned little shortcuts or whatever, right? So mm-hmm. what we do is you move your hand. You don't have to move your arm that far because to throw a shuriken, you need 20% of the arm movement that you need for drawing the sword itself, right? So right. we launched that shuriken right at his eye line. At the moment he's going for his sword to, to, you know, to match ours, and he gets tagged in the face or the throat or the hands or whatever, that stalls him just long enough that now I can go back and draw my sword. But my hand is moving the same way to throw it, retract, grab the sword, and pull. It's the same muscle group. Right? Uh-huh. I maybe calm up on one, but calm down on the other. That's minor change. Right? right. But it's, it's a way to put these things together so that you're not stuck in this, this pre-wired caveman instinctive human thing. Right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're a strategic thinker. You're applying tactical application to things in a way that this, this guy has never seen before. If he's never seen it before, he has to make up a defense against what you're doing on the fly, right? But if you fight the same way everybody else does, or he's seen what you what you do, um, you know, you may get a couple of shots in, but it, now, now it's a contest, okay? And, and yeah. the way the scrolls are, are laid out, right? This guy does this thing, and you do this thing, and it's over, right? Now, that's the epitome, right? But there's a whole lot that goes into that. That's why our kata are, what, three, four moves at most, right? So uh, it's just you don't give this guy a chance, right? You 
you set things up and you train yourself so that when he takes that shot or he thinks about taking that shot in the upper levels and you do what you do, is no, he's, it's, it's an overwhelm, it's done, it's finished. Okay? Hmm. So, anyway. So, if this crossover does other things. Yeah. <laughs> Now, I also see um, we got a question uh, from Christopher. And this is going back, I think, about a week, week and a half. So just, we're doing a little okay. bit of catch-up with not having a program last week. But um, he asked uh, kind of a two-fold question talking about, um, you know, he's heard you talk about working with the healthcare professionals. And um, he asked kind of if there was a recommendation for pre-hospital providers. So I think he's talking about a, a, a setting that's medical, but not maybe at the hospital, clinical so like setting, something EMT, like that. Kind of or, 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 yeah, the paramedics, um, you know, picking up a, a patient maybe who could be violent. Um, and then he also asked a question about uh, getting kids into training. You know, is there appropriate uh, age that's a good time to start training kids? So kind of a two-part question, uh, totally different <laughs> Although yeah, kids so can get kind of I, unruly. Yeah, I'll start with the kids thing first because uh, I broke my own rules for that uh, when I do that, right? At the school, I don't take anybody under the age of three and a half, and they have to communicate well and not run off the floor to mommy and daddy, right? Uh, my key is I want to get the kid before he's like five years old because by that point, personality traits have kicked in, and mm. helping them change those kind of characteristics and to see this as anything other than uh, a little activity, right? Um, it's, it's, that's all on them. You, it becomes impossible after five or six. And that's something from child educational and development specialists, not from me. And uh, so uh, my, my girls always uh, just believe that this was what we did because they started, I started them formally when they were like two and a half, but, remember that they were born into and grew up in the dojo, so uh, they just saw it as a, this is what we do. Um, yeah. So is there a good age? I guess it depends on what it is that you're going to do with them, because historically, and this is what I do with my girls, until we actually started doing, quote-unquote, come I and all that, right? Um, what I did with them was the same thing the ancient ninja did. You develop games, because... What you want is for them to be engaged physically, you know, flexible, agile, they're not afraid of rolling, that kind of stuff, right? So you make up these games, you know, leapfrog and all these old-fashioned things, and, uh, rather than just always letting them, you know, get on the devices and suck their brains out. Because once they get addicted to that kind of stuff, you're screwed. You want them to get addicted to this kind of thing. The other thing that I did with my girls, remember, they grew up in the dojo. And when I say dojo, we could have been training in a park or whatever. So they were always watching. They were always right there. Even if they were playing their own little games in the corner, they were constantly seeing people do this stuff. So by the time they were between two and two and a half years old, and I, quote, unquote, started their formal training, they were already mimicking the kamai without having been taught how to do the kamai. They would just walk around and show it off. Right? I can do this. I can do this. Check it out. You know? And mm. so mm -hmm. uh, it's very different than when, like, a parent brings their kids to my school sign them up at the age of four or five or whatever, right? Now I'm giving instructions and the kid's trying to sort it out. That's very different from the cool experience that a parent has where the child just kind of naturally assimilates into that culture, okay? 
And I know today it's not PC to be talking about, you know, how the culture controls you and all that kind of stuff. But um, mm. how the hell else would we navigate the world if we didn't have a, a basis? But anyway, yeah. I'll, I'll not get off my soapbox. So anyway, <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, just training with your kids. Don't pick a certain time because to them it's going to start to feel artificial and you run the risk of treating them like adults or at least an adult brain in a really tiny body, okay, because you're going to start to teach and you expect them to learn and you're going to start to share lessons and you're going to expect them to practice. That's not how kids learn. That feels very artificial and they're going to push against that because it's an artificial structure. What you need to do is take your kids on a hike and show them yeah. plan identification kind of stuff, right? You need to play little games of tag and bet you can't get daddy and, uh, or bet you can't do this kind of thing, right? Um, so that they copy you. But they're going to be learning so much more intuitively yeah. than they would be if you decide on a specific point. And I know this because my girls learned way more, way faster than when people bring their kids to my school. Does that mean they don't learn anything? No. But I have my kids all the time, right? Those kids are only in, in, in my class 30 minutes to an hour twice a week. So it's very, very different, right? So they feel like they're going to karate class. Hmm. Some of them say that even though, you know, we know it's needed to or whatever. I don't care, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, they're going to martial arts class or whatever. So when they're in martial arts class, they do martial arts. Can you see how that kind of a structure naturally sets them up to compartmentalize the training apart from everything else they do in their life? So if we're walking and I take them on a hike at a park or something and they're scuffing their feet or whatever and I go, if you make noise like that, you're not going to see the deer and the other animals and stuff like that, right? Let's see if we can sneak up on them and see them before they see us, right? Um, and then I'll have them listen, right? If you're hearing the birds chirping or the insects chirping and they suddenly stop, they heard you or felt you. So mm. they naturally, as a game, mm -hmm. want to reduce the amount of noise and impact they have on their world because they want to, want to sneak in there, right? Huh. So uh, it's all in the way you frame it, right? So that would be my biggest suggestion is in be careful using the teaching learning paradigm and do more of what the traditional ninja did with the, uh, the gameplay. And then when they hit a certain age, I would say, um, depending on the kid, between five and seven, but some can take as long as eight years old, when they start noticing the science behind things, oh, cool, when you do this, that happens, and things like that, then you can start teaching because now they're coming to you with the questions. Okay? Before that, it's just it's something Dad wants to do. They might think it's cool for a little while, but, you know, it's something that you do, right? But kids learn best up until a certain point through gameplay. Well, even adults do as well. That's why we have all the drills and games that we use that just get them out of that, you know, kata martial arts, got to do it a certain way kind of thing and get them back in touch with those base reptilian and mammalian level functions in the brain that are all about response and recognizing things subconsciously and unconsciously before the conscious mind has a chance to freaking catch up and try to ruin things. Mm. Well, it doesn't try to ruin it. It just, you know, 
it thinks it knows better. <laughs> it's the smart part. Right. Anyway. Right. So, yeah, that, that would be my suggestion with that. When it comes to um, the medical field, pre-hospital stuff, um, wow. So uh, I'm not even going to venture into techniques and, and things like that. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a couple of tactics, but I'm not going to venture into techniques because I, I, need, I, need, um, I need to see what's going hmm. on and, and what kind of conditions and situations they get into, right? Um, big things you work on are awareness, and I don't mean just paying attention to your surroundings. I mean paying attention to body language. Um, you stay alert and you stay aware. Somebody who's groggy or whatever might not be groggy. They might be faking that because they're trying to get to the hospital because they want drugs, you know? Hmm. Um, right. You know, uh, they could be having an interaction with meds. Next thing you know, this person that is docile, and maybe you've transported three, four, ten times or whatever, um, is now going to be acting atypically and reaching out at you and, and things like that, right? So control of distance and all that. So, um, you know, all these things you normally learn. But where caregivers run into a problem, uh, just like with law enforcement and all that, right, Often you have to close the gap and, and get inside that kukan hmm. because you have to put hands on somebody to to treat them, right, or to at yeah, least stop yeah. bleeding or to get the, the straps on, the, you know, around them so you can put them in the ambulance or whatever it is you're doing, right? So therein lies a problem. So now it's not about distancing. Now it's about angling, right? So I highly suggest that people take a look at um, – the things that law enforcement officers are taught with regards to things like traffic stops uh, and things like that, right, where you're using a specific type of angling to make it more difficult for a potential aggressor to get at you, right? Mm. So now we're looking at things like that are more related to Takagi Yoshin and Shinden Furoryu where the attack doesn't come in uh, straight on, okay? Mm. So, but instead of, in Takagi, uh, Takagi Ocean and, and Shinden Furoryu, the, the aggressor, the, the uke, comes in at an odd angle. So they're using that as their attack strategy, right? What we're going to do is reverse engineer that and flip it around so that as the defender, we're going to set up our positioning to force them to come in at an odd angle, right? So what I mean by that is uh, in police school, and I don't care what anybody thinks of police, they just, you know, live your life. Anyway, um, so uh, in police school, right, doing traffic stops, and I, I, this is one of the things that just aggravates the crap out of me because some people deserve to get punched, and, and I'm saying this openly, punched or shot or whatever because they're just being stupid or they're being lazy, yeah. right? Sure. Kind of like bodyguards that stop paying attention, and then they get shot up and their principal gets killed, right? Well, mm. you got lazy, right? Right. To me, that's universal justice. So anyway, um when you approach the car on the driver's side, okay, the, the, it, this is just a single car, single officer, you approach on the driver's side, you stand behind the door jam for the driver's side door. So you force the driver to have to turn around and torque their spine to get at you, mm -hmm. which cuts down. It makes it more difficult for them to shoot you. If there's a gun, gun in their lap, it makes it easier because all you have to do is naturally your reflex when something is, is dangerous in front of you is to step back. Well, to step yeah. back puts more car between you and them. It's, it's right. an instinctive reflex. Uh, 
So uh-huh. it uses that, right? Okay, so there's this off-angling kind of thing. Um, if there's two cops, one is supposed to go to the, to the door there, and then the one that's on the passenger side stays back at the corner of the fender of the trunk so they can look diagonally in at all the passengers, right? And they're uh-huh. farther back. So if the guy at the door does go down, they're in a much better position to neutralize, um, you know, the, the threat that's going on. So anyway, so as a caregiver, you can think about that when you're taking pulse or your, uh, you know, blood pressure, when you're, uh, you, you're doing the whole stethoscope thing and checking out respirations and all that stuff, right? You can yeah. just stand, position yourself closer to their arm between the elbow and the shoulder, so you're closer to the line of the shoulders, but you can still reach things, right? Because what you're doing is you're, you're working against their body's natural ability to get that arm and those three joints off at the angle where you're standing to be able to hit you, grab you, whatever, okay? So that's a huge thing. And that, I, I don't care if you're, you're, you know, maybe you're working for the Red Cross and you're taking blood or you're doing blood pressure screening someplace and the person's sitting in a chair, uh, you know, or they're, they're uh, on an exam table or it doesn't matter, right? Find that off-angle position that makes it more difficult for them to work easily in front of themselves, right? Hmm. That, that would be the big thing to start with because until that becomes natural, you don't have to, you know, any attempt at putting other techniques in there to defend yourself, what you've what you just done was write off the ability to control the situation before the fists start flying. Because once the fists start flying, if you're wide open, you got one hell of a job on your hands. Right, because they right. probably landed from that distance. They've landed two or three already, right? And your algebra works, right? You're in the negative, just trying to mm-hmm. hit zero, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, yeah, just use the angle. Um, if you're moving in on somebody that's uh, confused or maybe uh, they're agitated, or they may be threatening, but they're bleeding out, and you know you've got this response, things that need to get in there, right? Um, when you're trying to calm them down and, and maybe you're the guy that's calming them down while your partner circles around or the cops circling around to, uh, you know, get them into a much more, a much better position for you, you don't want to be any closer than one and a half steps from that person based on their leg length, not yours, based on their gait, not yours. One and a half steps. That one and a half steps will take them about just short of a half a second to clear that space, and this is important, right? Well, it's going to take them a little bit less than that, closer to a quarter of a second, okay? This is really important mm. because, and this is where this is where fighters get themselves into trouble, right? Because they get in there so close because they got to land that shot, um, and they're within that range, right? And mm. we've talked about this before. The average speed of a punch, we're back on punches again, Josh. <laughs> the average speed of a punch from the begin from the time that it fires to the time it hits the target is about 200 milliseconds, so under a quarter of a second, right? When when somebody when you're standing one step from somebody, it's going to take them less than a quarter of a second to close that gap and nail you, right? Hmm. So why does that matter? Well, it matters because the processing time from an image hitting the retina of your eye 
to you recognizing what's happening and your brain firing a signal to your muscles to move takes about a quarter of a second. So this is why we have this phrase that this thing came out of nowhere. Well, no, it didn't. But what happened was it happened in the gap between when it started and you got through normal, natural human brain processing. We all live about a quarter of a second in the past. Every decision Mm. you make is about something that occurred at least a quarter of a second before you even became aware that it occurred. So you need to be able to neutralize that kind of thing. This is part of those soft skills we talk about. That You can learn all the the techniques and and whatnot that you want, but if you don't learn uh, about intuitive connection, if you don't... Uh, you know, learn about these other little control factors. Um, it doesn't matter. You're gonna you're gonna be laying on the ground before you ever get a chance to, to do your move. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway. Wow. I don't know. I don't know. If, is Christopher on the on the call at this point? I, I don't think he is. Uh, like I said, this was kind of going back about a week, week and a half. He asked a question, and then we had uh, okay. skipped our program last week. So try to catch up. Well, was that helpful? Was that helpful to anybody else uh, on the call? I mean, you know. Because some people may be caregivers. They're not officially uh, in the medical field or whatever, but, you know, you're taking care of confused grandma, and yeah. doctor just yeah. prescribed a new med for her, or she's working on Alzheimer's. Not that she's working on it, but you know what I mean, right? And next thing you know, she doesn't recognize you and reaches out and slams you a good shot because, mm. you know, or just starts scratching and thrashing because she doesn't recognize you. You're a stranger, and she's panicking. Right, yeah. so you can you can use these things. Um, I've used it on my children when we I've had to take a splinter out of something or whatever. I'm not standing right in front of them. There's feet and fists flying around, right? <laughs> the, the, yeah. Very rarely are they just docile, right? So uh-huh. just positioning yourself at a better angle so that the, the limbs don't work in your direction, okay? But you yeah. can get the job done that you need to get done. So uh, anyway, yeah. You know, and and we talk about it, too, from, you know, the caregiver side. But, uh, you know, I think also how often do we find ourselves, you know, at the ER with a sick child and, and, you know, people are coming in from all kinds of things. And and perhaps, you know, that's when there's a situation of somebody who is uh, on drugs or a problem is in the ER and you're just there waiting to get waited on or perhaps you're there sick. And that goes back to us talking about, you know, being able to function even when you're ill. (laughs) so, so many things. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think that's important. And, you know, I, I, again, I mentioned this with my, my Friday morning group. Uh, we were talking about the third eye, right, in, in uh, mm. all these uh, Eastern metaphysical kind of things. We talked about opening the third eye. Well, it's not like you're growing an eye in the middle of your forehead, right? It's a, it's a symbolic eye. But um, what we're looking at is the fact that the two eyes that you came with, right, um, can only <laughs> process what they register, what's there in front of them, right? So we're looking at the trees, but we can't see the forest, right? Hmm. Because we're only looking at the objects in front of us. Kind of like folks that can only see the moves in their kata, or they only can, they can only see the kata they've collected, or the weapons that are on the official list of the style, or whatever, right? So you have these eyes. The third eye, when it opens, that is sim- a symbolic reference to the enlightenment that occurs when you can now see the forest for the trees, right? Hmm. You see what's in front of you, but you understand that there's all these other things going on 
that, you know, most people don't even know are going on, okay? And this is where wisdom and all that kind of wonderful stuff comes in. So, uh, you know, whether it's the, the ER or things about the fist or whatever, right? Um, understanding attacker logic and how somebody's, how somebody's build, right? Their, their, their anatomical shape, right? Whether it's from weight or they're just a naturally tall person or whatever, this in and of itself dictates the kind of fight systems that that person will be naturally attracted to because those fight systems they're attracted to are already meshing up with how their body moves and what they instinctively know they're going to need to produce power or that's already um, helped to shape their preferences, right? Mm -hmm. So a big guy, you know, he's not very fast. So he's going to, you know, he's going to really be attracted to things that uh, allow him to get into a really good position, hold you down, and punch you once, and it's all over. The little wiry guy who knows he doesn't have that kind of strength or that haul-off power to hit you one time and drop you, he's going to be bouncing all over the place and tagging you in as many places as possible because he needs to wear you down, right? So, uh, and that's just two, right? But, um, but learning about these things. Right. This is what separates a ninja or a master warrior from somebody who's just good at martial arts. Hmm. Again, my show, my opinion. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, I just—I mean, if you think about the way Anthony Sensei moves and all that kind of stuff, you know, he said over and over again, and he's not getting any faster. Right? He's beginning slower over the years. Right? I mean, he's freaking eighty. What? Eighty-seven? He'll be eighty-seven in December. Right, um, he's—it's all about timing. It's all about angling. It's all about being connected to the intentions of the other person, because you lose speed, you got to make it up somewhere else. And the cool thing is that these soft skills that I'm talking about get better with age. Meanwhile, the body is deteriorating and getting slower with age. So, the magic happens, and. It should be developed now so that when you lose certain functions, right, um, then, you know, you've got these other things that nobody really understands how it works. Yeah. So but hopefully that helped with Christopher and everybody else. Um, you know, you got to get out of that paradigm of always thinking that you need to deal, you know, how would you deal with the aggressive person? Well, yeah. how about if we just make it more difficult for them to get at it? I may not be able to do anything about the fact that that person's aggressive or wants to be aggressive in this move, in this moment, but mm -hmm. I can do a lot with how easily they can get at me should they choose to be aggressive. And that makes a huge difference in how much control you have from the very onset because as I was taught as a white belt, one of the first lessons I was taught by Hatsumi Sensei was that a ninja gains control of the attacker long before the attacker ever realizes that he lost control. Now, how do you do that without putting your hands on him? So the average martial artist, control is I'm either psyching him out or making him bob when I'm weaving or, you know, that adolescent kind of stuff, or it's, you know, I'm going to manhandle him. I, you know, hit pressure points, I do all this kind of stuff. No. No, no, no. You want to control somebody, you control their perceptions first. Uh, you control their ability to get at you. You control their options, all those things, right? You control those things, and it just becomes easier and easier and easier. So, 
what, very what, cool. what do you have to throw on top of that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, it just makes me think, going back to kind of that idea, too, of, of, of being invisible in the eyes of your enemy and just, you know, being where where <laughs> you're not showing up on their radar. And, uh, you know, and then if it goes that step further and you do, positioning to not be where they can get at you. Um, right. And it just it just has that different feel from many of these other martial arts today where there seems to be much more focus on aggression and just jumping in and uh, it just kind of flies in the face of like, you know, wanting to throw yourself right in the path of a oncoming truck or something and, and you're going to have the power to deal with it and how much wreckage that's going to bring, uh, you know, whether or not you survive it um, versus this, you know, not not allowing yourself to get into that situation in the first place or being able to minimize the impact. It just has a totally different mindset. And it's Yeah. No, that, that, that's absolutely right. And, you know, the other thing, too, is that, um, again, we can we can look at the forest, we can look at the trees, that kind of thing. What people tend to do, and, and I get it. I mean, you know, you, you go in, you get with a teacher, they're going to give you these lessons and all that kind of stuff, right? But let's not forget that there was a reason that you decided to start. Right, so I'm going to I'm going to discount at the moment. Now, I'm not talking down on it. I'm just going to move that off to the side. The people that got involved in martial arts for egocentric reasons, or got involved in martial arts because of empowerment reasons or whatever, where they just needed to feel cool or powerful or confident or whatever, but they didn't really they're not worried about being physically attacked. Right, it's more of a more of a you know, more of a presence kind of thing, right? It's more of an internal thing, right? So, but if we're talking about being worried about physical attacks, like Christopher was talking about, you know, on the job, that kind of thing, right? Um, while your teacher will give you very specific techniques because you're going to start from the ground and you're going to build up with your fundamentals and all that, you still need to have this grander vision, which should include very specific situations that right now at the present time at you whatever your development level is scares the living shit out of you that you know that if you got in a situation like that things would not go well in your favor because that's what you're aiming for your training should be taking you in the direction of being able to handle that from my experience most people start with the vague notion that they're going to learn all this stuff, and then they're going to be able to handle anything. But without a specific type or types of situations that you know you can't handle right now and would like to be able to, you're, you're, you know, it's, it's, Zig Ziglar said it one time. Uh, he was a, a sales and business coach and all that. He said, um, if you aim at nothing, you're sure to hit it, right? Mm. Um, if you don't have a clear goal in mind, it doesn't matter what path you take, right? So how will you know that you've reached whatever level when you get there? Now, that doesn't mean that you start out with one thing that scares you now. Along the way, you learn how to handle that, but you become aware of something else, right? And then that right. becomes the goal, right? And that's the way it works anyway. The horizon always moves away from you as you get as you walk toward it, right? So uh, that will change, but have specific skill sets and not skill sets, but scenarios, you know, 
the whole scenario, right? Your family's with you, or the, they broke into your house, or they jump into your car, or, you know, whatever, right? You turn a corner and you've already taken a shot or two, and, because that's going to tell you how to tailor the training that your teacher is giving you and how to ask the certain types of questions at certain points so that you get the skill sets you need to be able to handle those specific things. Otherwise, you have vague training that gets you to belt levels but is not designed to handle specific scenarios, like Christopher's question about, uh, you know, pre-hospital, transport, whatever. Okay? So I think that's, that's incredibly important. Okay? Taking stock of, of your job or, you know, how you dress at home or when you're just kind of hanging out or when you're at work and all that, right? So do you already carry any weapons on you? I don't mean weapons that are called weapons, right? But I wear suits very often, right? So there's a ballpoint pen or two in my shirt pocket, right? Mm -hmm. um, strong ones, right? Uh, I almost never go anywhere unless it's a plane uh, without a clip knife, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm always armed. Even when I'm not armed, somehow I find something, right? Um, car keys. You have these car keys, whatever, right? I mean, take stock of things and train with them, right? If you can't physically train with them, at least sit down and work visualization so that you can visualize yourself in scenarios with uh, this, you know, stuff going on and a specific type of an attack coming at you and you know, you're going to deal with it as it, as it, uh, as it comes back. Right. So anyway, well, I don't see any other questions here on the webcast side and, uh, okay, okay. I don't have anybody on the call part. So looks to be it for questions, but that works out because we're, we're pretty much out of time with kind of getting a late start. So <laughs> I'm glad we're able right. to connect with you. And yeah, me too. And, and me too. In. I apologize for being late. Today, <laughs> Shimon. Yeah. Well, that's okay. As long right. as it doesn't happen again. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. So sorry. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, not much of a show until you're here. So it's only uh, you know, it's on time when you're here. <laughs> no, don't sell yourself short. We're co-hosts for a reason. Otherwise, you'd be, I, I'd be the host, and you'd be that guy on these late-night TV shows that sits on the couch, and he's kind of a comic relief. Right. right. Um, You're just, I oh, wait. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I always laugh at his jokes because he's funny. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. <laughs> All right. Cool. Uh, well, Excellent. If there are no other questions or anything, then I guess we're going to wrap this one up for another time. Don't yeah, forget about we, spring camp, uh, damn it. That's coming up. That's coming up very quickly. And, uh, yeah, so get in on that. More details are in multiple places. But, uh, again, to link up with questions for the show, you can go to Kuden Podcast on Facebook. That's right. And we, we now have one set up on the Modern Ninja Warrior site uh, that has all the past uh, episodes, just like on iTunes and all that, has that. But the other thing is we, we combine that with the sign-up form to get on the early notification uh, mailing list, and uh, I don't know if everybody knows yet or not, but you started producing little video clips of little things if something pops up uh, during, a, during a show. Uh, you did one on a should again and all that, so 
uh, people that are on that list uh, or that are uh, liking the Facebook page and all that, that's where we're going to be sending those things. So if you're not on the list and you're just on my general list and you find out about the show literally like just before it's going to happen, like the day of, then uh, you don't get all these extras. So hint, hint, nudge, nudge. And, um, yeah, we, we definitely need to finalize that T-shirt because that is a cool T-shirt. Uh, yeah. Need to get that thing. So, but I, I know what we held it off because you, you put it on that we were on iTunes before we were on iTunes. So thanks. For yeah, the well, and we switched providers, so the T-shirt right. is slightly different. So we had to re, rebuild the design. Oh, well, is it still just as cool? Uh, Yeah, I think so. <laughs> okay, well, let's put it out there and we'll find out if everybody else thinks it's cool. <laughs> All right, I'll talk to you about that this next week coming up because I'm going to have some free time now, right? Cool. Sounds great. All right, cool. All right. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and I'll talk to everybody again uh, next time. So yes. go ahead and wrap this up. Thanks for joining us, everybody, and uh, another great episode of Kuden. We'll look forward to seeing you again next week and get those questions to us. Uh, and sign up as uh, Mr. Miller referenced Modern Ninja Warrior page. You can get linked up with that early notification. Definitely do that, and uh, have a safe week. We'll see you next time on Kuden. Thank you for listening to Kuden, the podcast for self-defense and martial arts news, interviews, techniques, and history. For more information on upcoming martial arts seminars, camps, and classes with Sheehan Miller, or to submit a question or discussion topic to the show, call 570-884-1118 or visit warrior-concepts-online.com.